Most of us have heard of the story of Noah and the ark. It was just read for us just a moment ago, but for many of us, we have heard this somewhere in our life. In our nurseries around America, a lot of people will decorate with rainbows, and in our children's area and preschool area downstairs, we have a rainbow in the ceiling area of that. Many kids will like those little rainbows somewhere, and so we know that this is part of the story of Noah and where it came from. But the Bible talks about the story of Noah as more than being just some sort of a nice little tale or a fantasy of some kind. It speaks of this as a real account. It's pretty interesting when it details out for us the exact width and height and breadth of the uh, ark that would be built. It's pretty amazing when it talks about all of the animals and talks about all of creation, when it names out Noah and his sons and their families. It's pretty epic that the scriptures would talk about it in the Older Testament in the book of Genesis, but it doesn't stop there, and it doesn't forget it or just leave it hanging, but it continues on. The prophets would refer to this event that took place as a real event, more than just an allegory or metaphor to be referred to. It's pretty interesting when you come to the Gospels in the New Testament, in Matthew and in Luke, you'll read there that you have Jesus speaking. And when Jesus speaks about the time of Noah, he says, at the end of time, it will be a lot like it was whenever Noah experienced the end time around the boat. That's when the Son of Man will come. That's when Jesus Christ will return. And the Scripture talks to us about that. In Hebrews, it talks about it. In First and Second Peter, it talks about it. So throughout the biblical account, we have the story of Noah and the ark referred to or described for us in various ways and in various levels of detail. So we today are looking at lessons from the life of Noah, and I believe God will speak to us and share some things with us that will help us as we navigate this thing called life that is so crazy and almost unpredictable now. The first thing I want to point out to you about Noah is this. The world around Noah did not honor God. The world around him did not honor God. When God had created Adam and Eve just nine generations before, not that far ahead of him, when he had created Adam and Eve, God would come in the cool of the day and he would visit with them. Now, can you imagine God showing up at your house? God showing up at your house or in your yard. I mean, you're going to have some family and some friends that are going to be in your yard later today, right? You're going to grill something, things are going to happen, and you've got it all figured out how it's going to be. But can you imagine if it was someone stepped up far beyond that level and brought into the realm of deity, God himself would come over to your picnic after a while, and he would come to your house. That would be absolutely amazing if God would show up in this way. He was having fellowship with, with them, and they were having a wonderful experience, wonderful interaction. But they decided they weren't really so keen on that. They wanted to have some things done their way, and so they decided that instead of honoring what God had requested, instead of obeying what God had asked of them, which was to not eat of this one particular tree. He says you can have everything else, but not that. They said, well, we're going to go ahead and have that too because we want to do it our way. And so they went ahead and did it their way, and they would live to regret the way they were choosing. And so they were driven out of the Garden of Eden. But God's intent and God's purpose is to have fellowship. He's not just some cosmic killjoy looking to smack somebody over the head, create some bad time, 
You and I see some of our family members and maybe an ex has walked out on you and you're mad and you're broken and you're bitter about it. And you wish some kind of a big sinkhole would open up and alligators would be in there and they would eat them up and it would be the end of them. And you want to really get after them like that. But God really has had a heart toward reaching out to people and really wants to meet people. But in the Older Testament, he tends to show himself in the justice side as well as the mercy side. And so look at verse 5 of our passage here. He looks on the world and he says, wow, there's great wickedness all around. He looks at his creation and he says of us that there's every inclination of evil. They're violently dealing with one another. They're dealing treacherously. They only think of evil. They only think of evil all the time and continually. Their trajectory is to serve themselves, not to honor and respect God. And so he said they're given over to their imaginations and to their fantasies. And it is absolutely amazing how we can allow ourselves to become depraved. I remember having a very close friend who had walked in faith with God, walked very closely with God, but he said to me after he had done something that he regretted very much, he said to me, he said, Kevin, I cannot believe I allowed myself to do that. I thought others would do that, but I never thought I would do that. And the that that he was referring to in his own life was something that marked him forever. It was something he wasn't proud about. But very often in our own arrogance, or in our ignorance maybe even, we'll allow ourselves to embrace something, not really understanding what's behind the door of that which we are embracing. Jim Baker, he said, after experiencing television fame, he fell. He admitted it. And you can read his writings and listen to his recordings about it. And he's not proud of it. He's very sad about it. And they ask him, what was it that caused you to pursue the path that you did. He said, I love Jesus, but I did not fear God. I love Jesus, but I did not fear or respect God. These people here were acting evil continually. Look at verse 11. The earth was corrupt and full of violence. Verse 12, the people have corrupted God's ways. In verse 13, the earth was filled with violence. The culture has become cold-hearted. Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9 puts it this way, the human heart is most deceitful of all things and it is desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it can be? You and I left to our own inclinations, to our own devices, will allow ourselves to gravitate away from God and will do things that we did not want to do and become people we never thought that we would become. But the context of our passage comes in chapter 6 of Genesis, verses 1 through 4. And you see here some of the things that are happening is this. They got the marriage situation all wrong. They were marrying and leaving God out of the plan. And we know how the Scripture says that God who created us created marriage to be. It is to be between a man and a woman according to God's creation. And it is supposed to be people that would not be unequally yoked. People who are walking in faith or maybe people that are just not walking in faith. But it is people to be equally yoked. And I make no qualms of talking about that today. Our society and our culture has confused the lines and blurred the lines of what it is to be able to follow after God. And I am convinced, I am convinced as I was talking with a number of people and recently talking to another minister, and I was saying, I really believe that we are in one of the most confused generations that has ever lived on the planet. 
And I really believe that a lot of people don't know the difference between right and wrong right now. And so what it amounts to is most people think we hate them if we talk simply the truth. And they'll say, you're yelling at me. You don't like me. It has nothing to do with you, sweet pea. It has everything to do with what God is talking about to all of his creation. So let me say something. Let me say something. We must be very careful that we don't wish the trap doors would open up, but that we wish the mercy and the grace of God would be extended to all of our friends and to all of our people because we need God. We need him desperately. We cannot change the scriptures. We cannot change what God has said. So we must change. And that is what he was asking of creation. He wants us to be part of his restorative and reconstructive generation. And this is what he was wanting for Noah. And so God decided to reset his creation. This is pretty amazing. Anthropomorphisms are things that happen whenever God will show himself in a way that we can understand. We may not understand that word, but we can understand its meaning. But an anthropomorphism is talking to us about where God expresses how he feels about something. And he looks on humanity. Look at verse 6. He regretted that he had even made us. Look at verse 6. He's troubled in his heart. He has such high hope for humanity. Think about the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve and the fellowship they had with God. The close and the wonderful cool of the day that they were experiencing with God. But now he looks at humanity and he's so frustrated with where we have gone and so fed up with the ways that we have gone and how we have ignored him. Are you ignoring him today? Are you listening to him? Does he matter to you today? You and I will go see him someday. Please embrace him. Take the scales from your eyes. Pray to God to remove the scales from your heart and be able to experience him today that you might be able to open your heart and see what he is saying. He had regretted that he had done this and this was a heart of God. But he looks over creation and he comes to finally to Noah's family. And God, looking all over creation, stops at Noah's family. And he says, Noah, I know Noah. Noah knows me. Out of all of creation, he's the only one who is respecting me. You may feel this way sometime in your own life. You may feel you're the only family, the only person, the only person anywhere that you know of that is following after Jesus. And so you see the loneliness that that can be. But I want to hearten your life today a bit by this. God knew Noah. Isn't that awesome? God knows you. And he knows where you are. And he knows what you're thinking. And he knows what your family's up to. He knows you last weekend celebrated two years sobriety. He knows that. Congratulations to you. He knows others are working through things and you're trying to break off of things. And he knows that you're trying to get free and to figure him out. He knows that. He is aware of that. And he saw Noah and he considered, the scripture said, he considered Noah. And so he knows him and he knows your family and he knows what's going on with you today. And God decided he would create a plan that wouldn't annihilate everybody, but he would spare Noah and his family. And then he would wipe everybody else out. This was going to be the plan in the reset. And God says to Noah, I want you to build a major boat. I want you to build a massive boat. And he then, the scripture says, begins to give him the ark, all the descriptions of how big it is to be, uh, how many levels it is to be, how many rooms it is to have, where to put the door, and the scripture details out for us, and this builder has built this boat that represents that. And so while he's building this boat, it's going to take him a long time. 
I don't understand this, but God does things a slow, difficult, hard way most of the time. Am I right? You know he does. You want him to come in a microwave fashion, get her done. But God does not do that. He comes in that slow, difficult, hard way. You can kind of hear Eeyore talking there. Well, slow, difficult, hard way. And that's the way very often God will work. And so he says, I want you to build this boat. It's going to save your life. Now, Noah may have never seen a boat before. I'm not sure. He's in a desert area. They haven't had rain. And so here he is. He's thinking about it. He said, okay, I'll build this. And so he's going to build this boat. Now, think about the, the, the justice of God, but think about the mercy of God just for a minute. Don't go too far on that wrath side of it. Come back just a minute and think about the mercy. Did you ever think of this? It's going to take him 120 years to build that boat. Do you realize how many people are going to come by and say, what in the world is this? They've never seen a boat. They've never had rain. And they're going to be looking at, and you know what it gave Noah and his family time to do? I think this is one reason it took them 120 years. They had to talk to some people, and they began to explain to some people what was going on with this boat. Let me tell you something. If you follow Christ closely, if you follow Christ closely, you're going to stand out. You're going to be different. You're going to seem peculiar or odd to a lot of people around you. And they're going to want to stop by and they're going to want to ask you some questions. Why are you doing this? Why won't you do that? What's up with you? They're going to want to know what's going on if you follow the Lord Jesus closely. And the reason I know that is because I do follow him closely and I have people ask me about those kinds of things. It happens. And they want to know who you are and why you're acting the way you're acting. And then he gives you an opportunity to do like Noah and to share a story. Some of you wonder why you're still living in that neighborhood. You're wondering why you're still going to that school. Or you may wonder why you're still part of a club. Or you're wondering why you're still living or why you're still working where you're working. You listen to this. You may be Noah or Noet <laughs> in that culture. And you may be shining as a beacon for God. And that may be exactly what you're there for, is to shine for him. It may be more about him than it is about you. And in this case here, he was able to shine and he was able to tell the good things of God. And then I want to point something else out. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, that's what verse 8 says to us. That doesn't mean one day he's walking along looking for some wood to help build the ark and all of a sudden he finds a box of grace. Oh, look at this, a box of grace. I found grace. This is pretty cool. Didn't mean he sat at the table and said grace. Didn't mean that. Didn't mean he had a relative named grace. Didn't mean that. Somebody better answer that phone. Didn't mean that. <laughs> but what it did mean was he was in life discovering that God was opening up grace and mercy to him. And when we put our arrogance and self-reliance aside, we begin to see the mercy and the grace of God, and we don't pick up big stones to throw at everybody else. We begin to say, I'll pray for you, or we'll say under our breath, I'll pray for them. I love you in the name of Jesus. Nothing you can do about the fact I'm going to put my prayer arms around you, and I'm going to raise my heart to God, and I'm going to ask him about you and remind him of you. Oh my goodness, you've done that, right? And when you begin to lift up in the name of Jesus all the things that God is about and the hope that can be in them. You're finding that grace. And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Grace is mentioned here first. It means somebody in an elevated position can reach down to somebody in a lower position and help them. It means the divine can reach to us and lift us up. Noah 
discovered the frontier of grace. Have you discovered the frontier of grace? God's grace, it's amazing. He experienced the grace of God given to him. Now, there have been many stories written about Noah and the ark and all that's going on with this. But there was a story that some have written, and in children's books they've written about it, and they talk about the different animals and how they came to the ark, and it's pretty cool. One of those books tells about the story of the snail. The snails get along at a real slow pace. Some of you may feel like a snail sometimes. I don't know. Some of you might be a snail. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> but you're just, just real slow. I like to get things done real quick, and my wife tends to do things a little bit uh, more sure than I do and slower than I do, but we get them done. And the snail was trying to get to the ark, and it says that Noah was walking along one day, and he realized that, and, and he picks up the snail, and he carries it to the ark. That's grace. We were walking along one day and needed a Savior and needed some help and needed some hope, and somewhere along the way, grace reached down to us. It is the amazing grace of God that has lifted us up and set us in what the Scripture calls heavenly places that we might be forgiven of our sin. Can I get a witness in the house somewhere today? <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, in Ephesians 2 and 8, it says, for it is by grace you have been saved. Look at that. Your looks can't get you there, and you're all awesome-looking people. Your money can't get you there, and compared to the world, you're rich. Your money can't get you there. Your education, and you're really smart people, and that can't get you there. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It is a gift of God. Verse 9, look at it in our passage in Genesis 6. Noah was righteous in God's eyes. That means he was obedient to what God asked him to do. How are you doing with that? Are you doing what the Lord wants you to do? Are you finding your own way? Are you ever reading the Bible for yourself? Read it. Find out what God is saying. He was obedient, and he treated people well around him. In verse 9, it says Noah was blameless in the eyes of God. And notice verse 9, it says he walked faithfully before God. He lived with honor in his day to day, and he would die faithfully before God. In Genesis chapter 7 and verse 1, it says that his family would be saved. This is absolutely powerful. Do you know if a child comes to faith in Jesus Christ first in a family, listen to this, if a child comes to faith first in a family, the likelihood of the family becoming followers of Christ is 3.5%. Did you know that? Statistically proven. Did you know that when a lady, the mother, the wife becomes a Christian, there is a 17% chance that the rest of the family will come to faith in Christ. And did you know when a father comes to faith in Jesus Christ, the statistics tell us there is a 93% chance that your family will come to faith in Christ. When I was a little boy, I went to a, a little church uh, our church wasn't as big as these two sections put together. You go back two-thirds of the way and then just the rest of you, I'm sorry, you're not in our church. <laughs> Y'all, we're going to have church. This was our church. The little church, about 100 of us. 140, I think, was our big number. And for some reason, I never could figure out, you know, I knew why. My dad made me sit by him. 
I was the last in the family. I gave my dad a run for his money. And so my dad said, boy, you'll sit by me. And I said, okay. So I got to sit by my dad in church. Now, my mother played the piano. My sister, when she grew up, she started playing the organ. That was back in the days of piano and organ. We've come a long way, baby. But that was in the days of all of this. But anyway, my dad said, we're going to sit up here on the third seat. The pastor's wife sits on the second. Nobody on the front, but we're sitting on the third so your mom doesn't have far to walk. So I said, well, wherever, whatever. So we sat down on the third seat. My dad took me to church. My dad didn't just drag me to church. He took me to church. My dad was, was a Sunday school teacher for the young married couples in our church. We had a number of them. and They loved him, and I still remember him studying his lesson through the week so he'd have something to say, and he loved them back. It was wonderful. It was a great experience to see him do that. My dad knew the Bible pretty well, really well. And um, we would sit there, and occasionally God's Spirit starts moving, like a while ago when we were singing a song about Jesus, Jesus. And you could just sense the presence of the Lord in the room. You sensed him, right? I sensed him. And as he's in the room... My dad, when, when, when God starts showing up in the service, he kind of turned. I'm sitting over here on the end of the row. He kind of turned, a lot of time put his hand right up here, these two fingers on the pew ahead, and he just started kind of rubbing the back of that pew when the Spirit of God started moving on him. I could tell when, when he was getting warmed up. <laughs> He's, he started happening. Now, I'm a little kid, and I'm looking at my dad, and I'm just kind of following my dad, and whatever my dad does, I'm doing, right? I'm just watching. I didn't know how it, how it all worked out. So I'm just looking at him. I remember, I remember sometime when God started really moving on my dad, he'd stick his tongue up between his teeth and his lip, like that. And uh, he'd be rubbing that bench. And he'd have his head down. I knew he was fighting back tears because God was moving on his heart. And once in a while, I'd see him go for his glasses. He looked a lot like me. I looked a lot like him. He'd go for his glasses and he'd push them up kind of readjusting the tears that started filling his eyes. My father had a stroke when I was in high school. It was a devastating day. I didn't like it. My dad suffered that stroke. He was able to recover from that stroke, for which I thank God. But it touched a part of his brain, though he was able to function in all ways. It affected a part of his brain that made him cry. When uh, I come from the land of illustrations, the preachers preach with illustrations and use the Bible too. And uh, anyway, uh, preachers especially get close and some illustration would affect my dad. He couldn't help it. He just kind of, he kind of go <laughs> out loud. And people around us in a quieter sanctuary, they could hear him. It wasn't a big room. They could hear him. And it was embarrassing, but he said, I'm still going to church. I'm not going to not go to church. We're going to church. 93%. If you're tracking with me, say yes. My dad drove me to high school in his car. And we were the last two at home. And every morning, he'd say, kneel down, boy. I knelt down. And every morning, my father led me in prayer and a blessing over me before... I went to school every morning. This morning, my two sisters are involved very much at their church, and they'll be there this morning. 
My brother's very involved in his church and his family, and they'll be in church this morning. Pam and I decided we would follow God wholeheartedly. I did not want to unequally yoke. I married somebody following in the faith, so I married her, and I was grateful and humbled by the opportunity. And in marrying her, we made a decision we would put God first in our life. You know, I talked to you about that. I've done that. That's how I live. I'm not arrogant about it. I say it in humility. It's not always easy. It's very hard sometimes. But I put God first, and we did. And in our marriage, today we have three kids. And every kid has their own choice. They can go their own way. But they have chosen, each one, to follow God and to follow Him in ministries of churches. And I'm humbled by that and their spouses. And I thank God for that. Every family will not always follow God. Everybody is a free agent and you can choose. Joshua said it this way, you choose today who you will serve, but as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. See, you can make that choice. You have the opportunity to live a life honoring God and you can live a life like Noah, even if anyone else around you doesn't or does. And you can live with God. And at the end, you will be saved. You will be saved. That's what happened. Now, the rainbow came into the story. This is the first time a rainbow came in. It's been hijacked by our culture for a lot of different reasons. And most recently. But let me say this about the rainbow. The rainbow that appears in Genesis 9 and following appears here. And you know what it is a symbol of? God said, I'm going to make it so I can look at it to remember how I hated what you were doing and annihilated the living stuffings out of you. I will not annihilate you the same way again. And it's going to be a promise to you to know that I'm honoring my word. It is a covenant made as a result of very promiscuous, immoral living. And he gives to us a rainbow. Now, I want you to go with me just for a minute to the Garden of Eden. This chair right here will represent the Garden of Eden. So if you're at Eden now, please say yes. We're all at Eden now. We're with Adam and Eve. We're in the cool of the day. We're meeting with God. He's in our yard. Oh, it's good. And we're having a good conversation. It's great. And he's instructed us, hey, have a good time here. Enjoy everything. You know, we got, we got everything here for you. Just go ahead and enjoy it. The s'mores are over there. and you know, So we're enjoying the fellowship with God. He's a holy God. So we're experiencing His holiness, and nobody's ever done that before. And we're experiencing Him, and watch this, watch this. He said, just don't eat of that tree over there. You don't want that one. It's not the one you want. Well, they just decided, no, we're going to do it our way. We want to go ahead and do that. So they did. Immediately they regret. Immediately they regretted Immediately they regretted it. So you can do some things and not regret it, maybe immediately, but you do some things, you're going to regret it immediately. Everybody's going to know it. You're going to know it. You're not going to like it. And so they did that, and then they didn't want to be with God, so they got kicked out of the garden. Now, this is generation number one. Everybody say one. one. It's the first generation. Then we have the second generation, Cain, Abel, Seth. Then you keep coming down these generations. Now, what happens very often is they have their God story that they can talk about. 
And what they do is they share their God story with this generation. So this generation has a borrowed God story, right? They have a borrowed God story that they can share about mom and dad. So what happens is if we bring it on along, this next generation comes along and this generation that has borrowed the story shares a borrowed story here. And the kids here have no real relationship with God. They knew God. They know about God. These people know of God. Now what happens a lot of time, not all the time, but a lot of time, if we continue this trajectory and we never have this generation own their own God story, it gets lost in translation till down here, third and fourth generation, they say, I don't need that anymore. That's just going to church. That's boring. That's stuff that's religion talk. That's just small-minded. That's for the uneducated. That's for the dupe. I don't need that because they've never had a God encounter, a God moment, their own God story. Have you ever had your own God story? When you have your own God story of how this was happening, but we called out to God and then that happened as a result of that, you develop your own God story. And let me tell you something, when you develop your own God story, it'll hold you through thick and thin because what you begin to understand is if he did it for me before, he can do it for me again. And if God is for me, who can be against me? And you can win in the trajectory of life that I know. And I'm happy for all the stories my grandma and grandpa had, and I'm happy for the story my mother and father had, but here I am in this generation. I have my own story, but you know what happened? Come out to the ninth generation, and we put that nine chairs out. They don't even really remember anything about God. And so when Noah's over here in this ninth generation building this boat, they say, what are you building the boat for? Well, God's going to do something. Well, we heard about God once. I don't know. I don't know. Eh, we'll do it our way. Uh, nice boat, guy. <laughs> you're losing it. You're, you're nuts. Because they did not have their own God story. They did not know God. My grandparents had their God story. My parents had their God story. I have mine. Pam and I have ours. And I would tell my kids about the grandparents' stories about my grandparents, their grandparents, and I would tell them my stories. But I said, guys, you've got to have Christ for yourself. You've got to have your own God story. And I'll never forget when Andrea called me up one day from Indiana Wesleyan. She had been helping lead the music one day, and she called back, and she said, Dad, something happened. Something happened in chapel today. And you brace yourself when you're all these miles away. You don't know what happened in chapel today. You're thinking, oh, help us, Jesus. And she said, no, we were leading the music, Reebok and I. And when we were done, we started this, the whole service was dismissed. But we just went to the piano and they still had a mic on. And we just started singing some of the old songs of Gaither. And nothing special about that, but God used it. And, and, uh, and she said, and people just started coming back in from all over the campus and God started moving and we didn't know what to do with it. It was awesome, Dad. It was awesome. I think it's like you told me about. I said, yes, you've got your own God story. You've got your own moment when you know for yourself and not for me and not for your grandparents. You don't just have some faded story of years gone by, but you've got a God story in your life. This is what I want for your grandkids and this is what I want for your children and for your children and for Maddox and Harper, their stories. And keep going right on into every row. This is what I want. And when I pray, I pray, God, let us sense you. 
so much of you at this church till you are the centerpiece and people's lives are changed, and I use that word, transformed by the renewing of their mind into what he wants us to be. Because it's not about me, and you don't answer to me, and I'm not all that. No, but he's everything. And if you can come in contact with him, he will transform you because it is his power that makes us what we ought to be and allows us to live victoriously in a world that is broken. So I ask you a question today. What will you do with Jesus? What are you going to do with him? Grace in the New Testament is not a flood and a restart, but it is the cross of Christ. His death, his resurrection is offered to all of us. All of us. The other day, Brooke, right back here, was in the hospital and Pastor Dwight went over and she has more health conditions than probably a lot of us combined. But here she sits in this service today. And Pastor Dwight walked in that room and was able to sprinkle water and baptism on her. She didn't know she'd even get out of the hospital. And in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, there was a God moment right there in the hospital. That's what she did with Jesus. She opened her heart and said, come in. Have you? No, have you really? Because you've got a shape in your heart that only he can fill. And you've got to fill it his way. You can't fill it any other way but with him. And when you do, you'll know it. You'll know it. And you won't be able to contain it. Others are going to know it too.